0: Our text for tonight is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn there now. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Apostle writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The year was 1961. The Green Bay Packers had just lost the NFL title game championship to the Philadelphia Eagles the year prior. And as training camp began for the new season with three dozen professional football players, all eager to dive into all the finer details and nuanced strategies that would get them over the hump and able to finally win the championship, their head coach, Vince Lombardi, did something unexpected. At the first team meeting, day one, minute one of training camp, he went to the front of the room and he held up a pigskin. And he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he made every player in the locker room turn to page one of the playbook. And he proceeded to spend the rest of the day of training camp discussing not elaborate details of football's most intricate and complex strategies, no, he reviewed the basics. How to block, how to tackle, how to run the things that they had kind of taken for granted. And this became a tradition for all of the Lombardi led Packers at every one of his training camps. There was an intentional commitment on day one of camp not to take the basics for granted. They were going to master the essentials first. And too often, I believe as Christians, our pride and our hubris clouds our own judgment when it comes to studying our Bibles. I know a lot of us grew up in the church. We won the Pinewood, or not Pinewood Derby, the Awana Grand Prix, we won those things. We won the Timothy Award every year in Awana. We memorized dozens of verses, and we can think, although none of us would dare say it out loud, I've moved past the basics. I've moved beyond that. I'm a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. If I put my faith in him, I'll be saved. I've got that down. I'm ready for something that's a little more complex, something a little deeper, you know? And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. There is no deeper truth. There is no more profound reality, no more mystifying joy than to marvel at the message that Christ came to die for sinners. I quote the eminent theologian Bob Hartman. The most profound truth I've discovered in my years of Bible study is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This evening we're gonna be looking at one verse, just one verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And frankly, this verse is a bottomless well of grace and we could drink deeply from this verse for many weeks without ever emptying the cup and yet the contents of this verse are so beautifully true and so marvelously simple that even a child can understand it. I titled this sermon, The Heart of the Gospel because it's very pretentious. And that's also what I think this verse is all about. Let's read it again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now before we dive into what this verse is telling us, just a brief reminder by way of the context around this verse. Peter, the Apostle Peter, is writing a letter. He's writing it to elect exiles, he says, of God. Men and women, believers in Jesus Christ who are living as strangers and aliens in a foreign and hostile world. They have been called by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit, for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ and for obedience to him as their Lord. And they are living as strangers in this world. And then he's transitioning now at this point in his letter to a very practical exhortation section. His letter begins with this, exultory examples of the great mercy that God shows to us causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection that's found in Jesus Christ or storing up for us an imperishable inheritance in heaven awaiting the revelation of Jesus Christ or that God is fitting us together as living stones into a new temple and a new priesthood to the glory of Jesus Christ but now in the middle of the letter he's transitioning into a series of very practical and very challenging commands for how we're supposed to live our lives in light of this new identity that we've been given. Because you are a sojourner and because you are an exile in this world, despite all of the pressure that is around you, this is how you must live. And there's a deep and, and powerful sense of comfort that we find in Peter's words as we are Christians who are trying to live out the Christian life, we are necessarily going to stand out from the world around us because we do crazy things, like talk to strangers on college campuses about the gospel. Because we do crazy things like set aside our rights in order to pursue peace with our friends and with our enemies. Ladies, you do crazy things like Buck against a culture that sensationalizes external appearances and flashy apparel in order that you can be clothed with what Peter calls the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentlemen, you do crazy things like repudiate a toxic culture of selfish bravado and arrogant personal conquest in order to put on Christ-likeness. And all of us daily are striving to put on sympathy and brotherly love and compassion and humility that swims against the stream of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and happy hour and hookup culture. These are very practical exhortations. These are real world everyday exhortations. And those practical exhortations when pursued with the zeal that Peter calls us to are, will lead to suffering. Christians are going to be mocked and slandered and ostracized and ignored and treated like weirdos simply because we're trying every day to look like Christ. Every happy hour we've declined, every homeschool group we've joined, every time we swam against the current of our culture in order to try and be faithful to Christ has opened us up as targets of opportunity for a world that hates Christ and needs a place to vent that hatred and it will be against the church. And so it's on the tails of that encouragement to remain faithful and and to remain fearless in the face of suffering that Peter runs back to the basic and fundamental truth of the gospel from which all of the Christian life flows. Remember suffering Christian. Christ suffered also. Suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure with you. Rather, suffering is a badge of honor that is worn by anyone who would seek to follow Christ. And we must never forget that Christ's suffering on behalf of sinners is the very heart of our gospel message. It's everything. And it's what we turn our attention to now, the very basics of this. We'll use three very familiar questions to get there. Who, what, and why? Now who is this gospel message all about? Who is the central figure? Who's the hero? Who is the one around whom all of human history has revolved? It's Jesus Christ. That's how the verse begins. For Christ also suffered. Our our tendency, my tendency often at times I fear is to skip over the name of Christ like a, a stone across the water merely because of its familiarity to my ears. and. I can acknowledge its presence as the subject of the sentence, but move on as if this was just another pronoun in the pantheon of human speech, and it is not. The word Christ is dripping with significance. It soaks up more than two millennia of biblical theology that needs to be wrung out in order to grasp all the meaning it finds inside it. I mean, when Peter speaks about the Christ, he is announcing the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. That word Christ, I'm sure you know, comes from the Greek word Christos. And we learn in the gospel of John chapter 1 verse 41 that that this is the New Testament term for the Old Testament term Messiah or anointed one. And whenever God would anoint someone to fulfill his purposes inside the nation of Israel, they would be anointed with oil as a sign of God's choice and as a sign of their empowerment for the ministry that he's giving them. When Aaron and his sons were, uh, were um, appointed to serve as priests, they were anointed. When Elisha was called to serve as a prophet, he was anointed. When Saul and David and when every Israelite king was crowned with the crown and sat on the throne. When he was accepting that royal mantle, he was anointed with oil. But Moses begins to make very clear for us in the book of Deuteronomy that the promise that was made was that there was coming one man who would be the Messiah, the anointed one. He would be anointed to serve not simply as a priest, not simply as a prophet, not just another king, but to be all three of those things. And this Messiah's ministry would extend forever. This would be the man that God appointed to bring his people his peace. This would be the man that God has appointed to rule his kingdom. This would be the man who would finally undo all of the devastation from sin in the garden. He would be the Christ. God's chosen vessel to bring salvation and hope and rest and comfort and joy. And and it wouldn't be on stone tablets or commands. It wouldn't be in rituals or ceremonies. It would be in a man, in Jesus, the Christ. This is why when Jesus begins his ministry in the gospel of Luke chapter four, he reads from the the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he reads these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has Anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But this man is unlike any other man. Salvation could not be accomplished by a mere mortal. The stain of sin that infects every descendant of Adam renders each one of us unworthy of the ministry of this Messiah. Our hearts are filled with corruption from our birth. I have toddlers, I know it, I can prove it. And as a consequence, every act of my attempted righteousness is in fact dripping with decay. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And you don't need a sermon to know that that's true. You just need to look at your own life. Do not sinful motives and, and self-righteousness seep into your most noblest attempts at righteousness? And that's why the Christ couldn't be just another man. He had to be very God in human flesh. And so when Peter uses this word Christ, which we can so flippantly fly over, he is bringing us before the everlasting God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son who dwells in holiness and in glory and accessible, in perfect delight and joy with the Father and the Spirit from before time began. And to call Jesus the Christ is to acknowledge the overwhelming compassion of God. It was just as Jesse talked about this morning. How could God so love sinful man that he would take on human flesh and dwell among us. How could God love you that much? How could God love me that much? But this is the God who is love. He became flesh. He became the Christ, the Messiah, God's appointed mediator of salvation. Our gospel message begins with a person. That's who the gospel is about. But what then is the message of the gospel? What has the Christ done for us? Peter goes on in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. By suffering, Peter here is referring to the cruel and unjust death that Christ would endure on the cross of Calvary. Even here, our familiarity with the message of the gospel can sometimes blunt the force of these words that we're reading. We've become so accustomed to the cross that we're numbed to the grand injustice of it all. Death entered the world because of sin, our sin. And because all have sinned, All must die. The dust from which we were created waits ready to reclaim our flesh when the last breath has gone from our lungs. And that is right. And that is good. And so, yes, death is a sad reality, but it's also a very common reality. All men who have ever lived deserve to die. All men. Except one. Jesus Christ never deserved death. He never sinned against God. He never violated God's laws. He never violated God's character. He never gave in to temptation. If death is the wages of sin, then Jesus Christ never earned one cent of the cross. And yet it was for death that he came in the flesh. This was his purpose in coming. It's the reason he set aside the glory of heaven. When Paul is trying to explain the mystery of the Christ to the Philippians, he says that he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross when Jesus begins to explain to his disciples in clear and uncertain terms for the first time what he came to do in Luke chapter 9. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we carry. This is what we believe. That the most holy God. He who existed in perfect, sinless righteousness, out of compassion for you, out of mercy for you, out of love for you, humbled himself to become like you. And even though he had never violated God's law, he suffered under the punishment of God's law. The author of life bearing the full weight and penalty of death sting and he came to die not peacefully of old age not painlessly through swiftness Peter says he suffered the one who deserves every word of worship being jeered and mocked and belittled. The one who sits enthroned in the heavens at the right hand of the Father receives the mocking contemptuous crown of thorns piercing his brow. The one who breathed life into the first man stretched out his hands on a tree and gasped for air and the one who perfectly fulfilled every single one of his father's commands endured the pain of all of his father's wrath. Death for sins that he had never committed, but would perfectly atone for your sins and my sins. As the hymn so poignantly reminds us, behold the man upon a cross my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And it is finished. Peter writes in our verse, Christ also suffered once for sins. Once. And unlike the Jewish Passover lamb, which since Egypt had been slaughtered in countless homes for years beyond memory, unlike the the bulls and the rams that were brought to the altar day after day in the temple, the sacrifice that the Christ offered upon the cross was was sufficient. Tom Schreiner writes, the reason Christ's death is sufficient is precisely because he was sinless. He could not have died for his people if he needed to die for himself. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us as well. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We need to understand that the good news of the gospel is good news precisely because it is finished. When Jesus cried out his last upon the cross and fell silent, so too did he silence every lingering claim that sin and death had upon his elect. Who is there to bring a charge against his elect? Because the blood of Christ offered once for all pays all at once. Christian, don't you find comfort in Peter's words? If All of God's wrath against your sin has been born and if all of the sting that death has to bear on you has been drained then what is there left for you to fear in this life? And I have to ask how is it that we can believe the death of Christ is sufficient enough to finally and completely atone for my sin before the infinite wrath of God's holy justice and yet still not find it compelling enough to prompt a pursuit of holiness in my life. You see, the who of our gospel message is the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless, spotless Savior. And the what of our gospel message is that the Christ suffered an unjust death at the hand of sinful men for the redemption of sinful men, accomplishing once and for all the complete atonement, our sin required before a holy and just God. But now we have to ask the why of the gospel. Why did Jesus suffer and die? Why did the righteous one give himself up for the unrighteous? And this is a question whose answer stretches all the way back into the garden. Look again what Peter writes in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Ponder the small word that, that. It's a word that indicates purpose, it indicates intent, it explains why something is happening. The reason that Jesus descended from heaven the reason that Jesus took on flesh and then had that flesh beaten and torn and crucified for our sins was in order to bring us to God. And those four words in our English Bibles are the very heart of the gospel. Christ suffered and died to bring us to God. Bring us is a word that means being granted access. It was the word that you would use when subjects were brought before a king or an emperor to make petitions. You know, you you couldn't just walk up to the palace and knock on the door and say, I'd like to see Nero, please. It just didn't work that way. You had to be brought into the king's presence by someone who had the authority to do that by someone who had the appropriate standing to receive an audience with the king. Someone had to bring you to the king. And Jesus suffered and Jesus died and he shed all of his righteous blood on the cross to bring unrighteous sinners into the presence of the king. I said that this answer stretches all the way back into the garden. Do you remember the first three chapters of Genesis? God, in holy benevolence, created the universe. And then inside this grand universe, he crafted an unbelievable paradise in which he placed his very best creation, man and woman. Created in the image and likeness of God, man was designed to enjoy perfect fellowship with God, worshiping and and tending the garden and being filled with delight forever. This was what we were designed and built to do. Our very hearts yearn for this kind of fellowship and then miracle of miracles, God delighted in his creation. God himself would walk in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, Moses writes to us in Genesis three. God fellowshiped with his creation Here were creator and creation enjoying perfect fellowship, untainted by sin and unestranged in their relationship and in perfect harmony and then prompted by sin and lured by their own lustful pursuits, Adam and Eve broke that fellowship through sin. And surely on the day that they ate the fruit, they died. Not in chronology, but in certainty. And the painful, unintended consequence was that Adam and Eve could no longer live in the presence of God anymore. Their sin prevented that. God was too holy to permit that. They were cast out of the garden and they began to endure all of the fallen frustrations of a world that is marked with corruption and marked with death. But nonetheless, God loved his creation. And he permitted not even one sunset to fall on the garden before God promised that one day he would send a descendant of the woman, an anointed man, a Christ, who would undo all of the brokenness of their sin. He would defeat the serpent, though it would require his own body be bruised to accomplish it. And that Christ, the anointed one, would once again restore fellowship between God and man, he would bring us to God again. In Matthew's Gospel account records that when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and this symbolic barrier between the presence of God and the Holy of Holies and the presence of sinful man in the temple complex was destroyed because God's Messiah had torn down the true barrier of our sin. Jesus had forever restored perfect fellowship between God and men. And now Jesus invites us into the throne room of the King of the universe, not merely his subjects, but his sons and daughters. And we approach the throne of grace with confidence because the one who brings us there is a sympathetic great high priest, Jesus the Christ. He's the good shepherd who puts us on his shoulders and carries us home. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news is not simply that you can have eternal life. Quite honestly, everyone lives forever. Both the redeemed and the unredeemed will have an eternity of existence. And the good news of the gospel isn't just that there's another paradise coming. The good news of the gospel is you get Christ. You receive the gift of fellowship with God. Heaven isn't good because it's a garden. Heaven is good because it is there that we enjoy the fellowship with God that we have ruined. And there's a kind of preaching that you can hear in this world that's not unlike the prosperity gospel and it promises reward and it promises blessing forever. But if our greatest reward and our greatest blessing isn't eternal fellowship with God, then you have missed the very heart of the gospel. In an illustration that's sure to estrange almost everyone in the room, I remember growing up in youth camp and we would sing that great audio adrenaline song, Big House. Anybody remember that? Jesse, I got one, all right. In case you don't, the chorus of the song went like this, I'll just recite it. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. A Big, big table with lots and lots of Food, a big, big yard where we can play. See, it comes full circle. It's a big, big house. It's my father's house. Now, cheesy 90s youth camp lyrics aside, you have to ask a question. What is it about heaven that makes it a paradise? Is it mansions? Is it feasts? Is it never-ending touch football games? No. It's God. I want to ask you a question. If you had the option right now, when you die, you can have every worldly delight you've ever dreamed of. Redskins can win eternal Super Bowls and all the barbecue beef brisket you could ever have. I don't know what your dreams are like. If you could have every one of your worldly delights fulfilled in eternity, but no God, would you take it? Friend, if you did, you'd be missing out on the very heart of the gospel. I have one last question to ask from this passage. We thought about the who of the gospel, the what of the gospel, the why of the gospel. I guess that now what I want to ask is the so what of the gospel, so what? What do you do with this kind of verse? What do you do with this kind of gospel? Well, first let me say that you might be here tonight and you're not a believer in Christ. Maybe you're just visiting this week, you're in town to see friends and they dragged you to church. Maybe this is all new to you and you've never heard this before. Maybe you've been to church your entire life, but you've never been to Jesus. Then you need to know something. You need to know that if you are living apart from Christ and are not trusting in him for your salvation, then all of your sin and all of its guilt And all of its condemnation and all of its penalty rests on you now. And if you hear this gospel message, and you remain unwilling to accept Christ's offer of forgiveness and reconciliation, and you die in that state, you need to know that you will remain estranged from God forever. God is the source of all good. All light, all joy, all life, and you will spend eternity severed from it. That is what hell is. And all of the holy wrath of God's justice will crash upon you with unyielding fury for all of eternity. but I beg you to hear the gospel's call today. This is why Christ came to offer reconciliation and forgiveness to all who would turn from their sins and place their faith fully in him and on his finished work in the cross. And if that is you here today, I beg you, please don't leave without being reconciled to God through Christ by faith. Come see me. After this, come talk to Jesse or Jordan or Dan or whoever dragged you here tonight. Come to God. Cry out to him in prayer and trust in his mercy today. Perhaps you're here and you are a believer you've already had your heart captured by God's grace and he's brought you to saving faith in him, then I beg you to run to the grace of Jesus that's found in the gospel every morning, to be refreshed every morning in the declaration of Tetelestai, it is finished. Find encouragement in the knowledge that the Christ who died once for your sins has been made alive and even now he sits at the right hand of the Father and stands before the throne making intercession for you. I want you to find courage in the knowledge that the finality of Christ's death and resurrection means that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of this creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. And whether it is through suffering or joy, I want you to find strength to live as an alien and as a stranger here on earth, as an ambassador for the Christ who loved you and gave himself up for you. And one of the ways we do that is through communion. We as the church gather together to remember the blood and the body that was shed and broken for us we're going to do that now in just a minute. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, thank you for the cross. For by it, we're saved. We can't begin to fathom the depth of your compassion for us. We marvel at this cosmic collision of your justice and mercy. I pray, God, that you would take our hearts captive by your grace. We thank you for the Christ, your Son, our Savior. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness and salvation that's found in him. I pray, God, that you would continue to save people even tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now, may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.